Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we interview inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. If you love learning about yoga, meditation, and the people that teach it, then this is the podcast for you. Today's episode is a conversation between myself, co-host Joe Stewart, and May Lai Swan. Melai Swan is a yoga teacher, musician, and the creator of Yoga for Humankind, a yoga school and social enterprise dedicated to bringing the benefits of yoga, mindfulness, and movement therapies to communities all over the world. Melai is a wonderful teacher and an inspiration. Her work and how she lives her life provides a practical example of how the yoga philosophies taught in many yoga teacher trainings can be applied to life. So we were really excited to get the chance to speak with her while she was in Melbourne recently. Now, Yoga for Humankind will be offering a trauma-informed teacher training in Melbourne this February, which actually sounds really amazing. Former guest of the show, Joe Bjork, will be co-facilitating this along with May Lai. So if you want to find out more about that, check out the link in our show notes on our website at podcast.flowartist.com. All right, so let's meet May Lai Swan. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of your podcast. Um, Pleasure. (laughs) So great. I was born in Melbourne, uh, inner city, kind of inner city Melbourne in Flemington. In a way, I'd say probably had a really normal, well, there's no definition for normal, but, um, you know, sort of inner suburban Melbourne childhood and my my parents, my mother's Australian and my father's Chinese Malaysian, hence my name, but my parents separated very early on. So I, you know, grew up with my mother and still had some influence of the culture from my father's side. And um, actually growing up in Flemington was so great because it was so multicultural in the 80s. Um, <laughs> and very, very diverse. So I do think that's probably really shaped how it's been for me growing up. So um, when did you discover yoga? In my, actually, probably in my late teens, I was actually a meditator first. So I got really into meditation in my late teens and had my first kind of series of yoga classes on the first silent meditation retreat I did in Thailand in 1998. And I remember it being so difficult because <laughs> I was I grew up playing the violin and reading books so I was not uh, like physical or embodied I was very intellectual as a kid and then I got really into meditation and I did quite some years of Buddhist meditation and lots of study of Buddhist philosophy and I kind of tell it like this I kind of blew myself out in a way from so much meditation and had a, a breakdown in my early 20s and it was because of that that intuitively I recognized I, I needed to get into my body and ground and anchor that. So I started practicing yoga seriously when I was about 22. And so I'm really interested, like, what do you think drew you into meditation? Were you just kind of fascinated by how the mind worked or was it an emotional need that meditation was helping you with that then you needed other modalities to help you through? It was probably both. I remember from very young being really interested in spirituality and not that I had a name for it then, but you know, I always, sometimes I was like, oh, I couldn't be a normal kid because, you know, kids, you get a wish for something and I would always wish for like, real happiness or I'd wish for the truth or things like this and I'd always think God, why can't you just make a wish like a normal kid um, <laughs> <laughs> unlimited wishes <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. but that's so that's kind of really just been the core of who I am and that you know first I was really interested in more esoteric spirituality because that's what was available in my early teens and then yeah through that it kind of opened up into meditation and I my first year of university I, I did a subject in the philosophy of Buddhism which was really what anchored it in and gave me a sense of home and then sparked off a you know, bigger meditation journey and then through that recognizing oh I really needed this yeah. And so do you think that the compassion aspect of Buddhism also kind of drew you into social work? Well, interestingly enough, it was, I think, my trip to Thailand at that time. It was the end of my first year of uni. I was actually studying 
to be an astrophysicist. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I went to uni to study and then went, you know, I was also doing philosophy, which is how I really met Buddhism. And I went to Thailand and did this meditation retreat and then backpacked for three months around Thailand and Laos and really had my eyes open. It was the first time I was in developing country and it really opened my heart as well. And I went home so changed and I thought I can't, I'm not interested in just having an intellectual career of, you know, really getting into physics and science and philosophy. I wanted to work with people. So I actually changed my, my majors and finished with a degree in development studies and environmental studies. And I noticed on your website that like, you've worked with remote Aboriginal communities and you've worked with asylum seekers in cities. Do you want to tell us like a little bit about that time and maybe how you found your way through all of that into what you do now? Yeah, absolutely. It was really such a, a big part of my journey. I guess I was, you know, in those, those few years after I finished university, I actually played music. <laughs> well, yeah, you do that too. <laughs> I did that, but that's also what took me out to the Aboriginal communities, to the Central Desert. So I had friends who were running music programs with Aboriginal youth and it just sparked something inside of me, also with my background in development. So I packed everything up and I moved up to Alice in 2006 and started working in some different fields. I was actually teaching violin in a number of schools and privately and working in a youth centre. for It was mostly Aboriginal kids there at the time. And then began working more in community development out on communities running music programs and youth programs and and then I had a position at the Central Land Council in a more kind of project management position for a while which was great because I got to travel across about 15 different communities and consult with them really about what their needs were. Um, it was from the Uluru rent money that came in that went to those communities so that was the role was working together with them collaboratively to see how to put that money to best use for the benefit of the wider community. So that work really shaped a lot of my experiences and a lot of my perspectives and how to work collaboratively. And there's so much in the history, of course, and there's so much in the ongoing power dynamics between, I mean, and I, and I use these words because this is still what's used out in communities there, is, you know, between white people and Aboriginal people. And I experienced a lot of challenge around that of what I witnessed and, of course, the, the challenges of life in Aboriginal communities where their culture and their, the history has really shaped how things look today, which, you know, there is a lot of abuse and a lot of trauma. It seems like as well a lot of basic human services in terms of like medical care and things like that that's just heartbreaking. Yeah, it's very, very challenging. Yeah, very challenging. And so was it kind of a conscious decision to move into yoga teaching and teacher training and still doing work that's really connected with social justice but not so much social work as such? No. Yeah, yeah it was an organic kind of thing. Yeah. It just happened really organically. I guess because I've, you know, I've had these parallel lives or is there a word for like triple L lives? Multidimensional. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of always done music and then I've always, well, since my late teens, always done, you know, meditation and yoga and then had this field of social work and community work also for, you know, about a similar period of time. And for quite a long time, they were kind of interweaving, but also quite separate. And I realized early on that I couldn't, even though I loved them all, I couldn't just focus on one of them because I'd end up miserable. And then I realized over time, I just have to do them all at the same time, all the time. So I was very busy for a long time. <laughs> and then slowly they just happened to weave together. And I, I mean, I think when I started teaching yoga, it was natural to reach out and to start teaching in the community. So I ran some programs where I was teaching women from asylum-seeking backgrounds and refugee backgrounds, and I did some other programs in mental health and community health. So that kind of naturally came about also because I'd been working in the field and had connections. So 
that started like that. And also just because I really yoga's my life and I don't think there's a separation between any of those apparently separate streams. I was also doing a lot of teacher trainings, like as a student, participating in a lot of extra professional development as well and somatic trauma therapy training. So I was doing all of this at the same time and started assisting on trainings and then started guest teaching on trainings. And that's kind of how it just all happened side by side and quite organically. Yeah. And so I'd actually love to find out a bit more about your work with sound and yoga and mantra and Nadi yoga. Yeah. So I guess that comes from my background as a musician and a meditator Mm. because, you know, we think about sound a lot of the time. We think about creating sound, but really the practices of sound and practices of meditation a lot more as well. I mean, that was also something that happened very organically that I was singing and songwriting and performing quite a lot and then when my music career I actually decided to stop it which was quite challenging but I did for the right reasons I think because of the music industry and where I was at in my life and it kind of just started to unfold that I got interested in kirtan and integrating sound practices into my meditation and I got quite involved in a practice called continuum movement, which originates from a woman, Emily Conrad, from the United States. And it really works in a really powerful way with sound and breath and intuitive movement. It's a very meditative practice in a way. And it was, yeah, a lot of it was through that that I really got to experience firsthand this connection between the body and the mind and sound and our own instrument of the voice and how that interrelates and can profoundly shift our experiences. So it was kind of this weaving together of all of these things. And I actually, a lot of it started where I at one point realized that I wasn't doing any volunteer work and I've done volunteer work kind of through my whole life. And I was reached this point, I was like, oh, all of my volunteer work has turned into paid work. And I thought, well, there's something I want to do that I want to give back. And uh, I was teaching at Good Vibes here in Northcote at the time. And the sound space in the studio was amazing. And I thought it's too good to not make use of. So I asked if I could run just a free community kirtan and really just, you know, it was something I loved. I really wanted to share it. I didn't want anything more more than that. And I was like, if five people turn up, that's great. I'd be so happy to share. And then people started coming. Then more people started coming. And then more people started coming. And that ended up kind of turning into invitations also to teach on this component on teacher trainings. I'll see a volunteer t- gig turn into a paid <laughs> job again. <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy. I've just kept finding different ways of doing volunteer work as it keeps shifting. But yeah, but that's that's kind of how it happened, and and people loved it. And I'm a total philosophy geek, and I love kind of weaving the bigger picture together of how sound fits in to the history and philosophy of yoga and where we've missed out on that in the West. And as a yoga teacher, I feel like if I'm going to call myself a yoga teacher, I have some kind of a responsibility to understand and know the tradition, like where it came from, Mm -hmm. as well as its evolution. So I also look at it from that perspective. I feel like that's so missing in a lot of kirtan things that I've been to. Like there's just not that context. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes not even that clear of an explanation of what the words you're singing actually mean. Or like I remember I didn't really get kirtan till I did it in Rishikesh in India because I'm not a natural singer so I was always like oh this is a bit awkward oh I'm not really getting it but the way that that teacher taught it there I really tapped into that meditative aspect of it and she really broke down the Sanskrit pronunciation Mm. and so that was a really interesting aspect of it for me as well like I just always felt like I was missing something Before then, it was just like, oh, I know that other people really are getting something out of this, but it's just not resonating for me. Yeah, and because so divorced from the original culture in many ways here, and I have seen so many people struggle with that, like, well, I don't quite understand it. Like, maybe it's nice, but I don't totally get it, or I don't get the deities and... 
the whole religious aspect of it. So part of what I love to do is to demystify things and look at it from a much more functional place, still very heart devotional place because that's also what it's about fundamentally, but so that you can kind of put your mind at ease, like have the explanation, put your mind at ease, and then you can just fully step in and experience whatever is there for you to experience. Yeah, beautiful. Mm. Just looking at your website and everything that you do and everything that you've told us about it seems like your work is really taking you all over the world at the moment which I imagine must be really wonderful getting to share what you do with so many different cultures and so many different people but I imagine it would be pretty challenging as well in a lot of ways do you want to kind of tell us a bit about that experience yeah and interestingly enough in a way it's been a long-term vision to be traveling and teaching But actually, when I left Melbourne, which was February 2017, so February last year, I left for my devotional practice and I felt this wind of change coming for about six months before it happened. And I thought, oh, I recognize this and I don't know how it's going to look or exactly what's going to happen. But I recognized that that was coming. And sure enough, like everything got totally taken apart (laughs) and it was this impetus to leave and I thought okay I'm going for my own devotional practice and I don't even know what that will look like but I'm just trusting this force that I feel behind me and I'll go and I had plans for maybe you know a month and then a little bit of teaching booked in later in the year and I thought if I have to spend all my savings and end up living on the street I'm going to do it anyway and just take the risk and As soon as the decision was so clearly made, without other people knowing, I started getting emails and messages and phone calls. Hey, would you come and teach on my teacher training in Sweden, in Bali, in Thailand? And it just (laughs) unfolded like that. And then I realized, I was like, oh, okay, so teaching is part of my practice. (laughs) (laughs) Universe is sending me a message here (laughs) via email. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And really it was like the day, you know, kind of like a day or two after I was like, okay, it's done. That's how it, so that's how it happened. And so even though it was a long-term vision, it wasn't a plan. And I didn't, you know, a lot of people say, wow, you've crafted such a great lifestyle for yourself. How did you do it? And I'm like, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I don't feel like I did it. You know, I get to enjoy it. And it kind of just kept unfolding from there. And I really try to also make sure that I still have time for my own practice and adventures and quiet time so it's kind of busy periods of time and then much more quiet periods of time where I'm in my own practice and so yoga for humankind is what you do now could you tell us a little bit about how that vision formed and yes what it is I'm so happy to talk about this it's actually a vision that came together some years ago was this idea to to weave in my social work with yoga and at the time I'd actually started another charity birth for humankind as a doula And that was so time consuming, I put everything else on the back burner. So I was running that organization with my co-founder, Kirsten Flannery. We were kind of really managing that, growing that together and then teaching yoga on the side and traveling and studying. And so it was kind of on the back burner. And then just before I left Melbourne, it had started to take shape because I was on so many teacher trainings and I love the container of a yoga teacher training uh, because people are there really ready to learn and to go deep and there's so much that happens in this kind of group process and creating a safe container for that and to see what unfolds. That's one of my favorite things ever. And I also saw that there were, I mean, the teacher trainings I've had the fortune to be part of are wonderful. And then also seeing and hearing about so many more and just kind of feeling like from my background, that this element of, I mean, I say trauma-informed, but for me, really, it's the, the kind of the core of humanity, like the core of being human and really offering people choice and agency and a way into experience their own bodies just right where they are, we're still missing, you know, that there's a lot more practices that are directive. And so that's kind of where it came from, was feeling like I really want to bring these together and offer this to people. And also because more and more yoga teachers were wanting to volunteer in the community, which is fantastic. And I'd started to hear and talk to people and discovered that, They had so many good intentions 
and ideas, but they actually didn't have the background knowledge or experience to go in and do that work effectively. So I thought, okay, these are some of my main skills and passions. I can put together some trainings that support people to really discover yoga in perhaps a different way for themselves and also then to share that forward. I think as well, something that I've really noticed with the trainings that you run, it's almost like you tap into this element that often people talk about, but they don't actually embody in a really practical way. Like I noticed when I was looking at your Bali teacher training, like you have a couple of places for local Balinese people to join. And it just made me think of how many teacher trainings would happen in these beautiful parts of the world and just not engage with the local people at all, or kind of talk about ahimsa or talk about compassion, but not actually model a practical way of bringing that into reality. Yeah, and unfortunately that's the norm. And the first time I went to Bali was in 2011 and I remember, I mean it's changed so much since then, but I remember going into, you know, shops and just getting curious of like what what's kind of happening here and striking up conversations with the staff in the shops who were Balinese and then the shops and the villas and everything are owned by foreigners making huge amounts of money and paying still the minimum wage to the staff or you know sometimes often a bit more but it's still nothing and there's a lot of politics and community stuff going on I I don't want to simplify the situation too much but I was so heartbroken and personally touched and uncomfortable and I love Bali and I'm so grateful to go there and enjoy all of the amazing things that it has to offer but it's really from that place that I felt it's the ethos really behind what we do. But if I'm going into a country or a place to run teacher trainings, it has to involve the local community. We have to be supporting them through the benefits that we get from being there. So we do have the yeah, local scholarship places and then also putting at least 25% of the profits from the training Some of that will go directly to Balinese Foundation and then some of it will go to some community programs here in Melbourne and then elsewhere as well. Yeah, beautiful. Mm. Yeah, it's really, really important for me that it does remain practical and, you know, kind of that we're really doing the yoga in action in in everything that we do. Yeah, because I think sometimes it's this really universal big picture sending love out into the universe, but it's like, well, what does that actually look like? Exactly. And we have to make it practical. And that's why I'm so grateful for all of the work that I've done on the ground in communities and often with people who experience so much disadvantage socially and economically and politically. Yeah, because sometimes it's like, well, where do I start? But if you've already had that community project building background, it's like, you know exactly where to start, at least how to connect (laughs) to people who are doing that in the location that you're in. Exactly. So it was kind of, it was a very straightforward next evolution for me, I guess. And then bringing Joe, Joe Buick, well, we actually met, both of us were working at the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence there. So we kind of shared a similar background and similar view on you know, what we were doing and how we were doing it. I really loved this text from your website. We want to live in a world where people experience daily well-being, connection and freedom, inner and outer. And we want to see a way of living together that is grounded in love, wisdom and celebration of both our fundamental sameness and our diversity and I thought that was so beautiful and so articulate and I'd love if you could just unpack a little bit more about this philosophy and the practical ways that you bring it to life which you've kind of already started on but I'd love to hear more. Yeah thank you. I mean for me this is really the weaving together of the yoga and the community work or the social work because yoga so much is focused internally on personal freedom and well-being and connection. I mean, they're words that I've thought about a lot and also tried to find ways to articulate it to show that it's not high, lofty, moral ideas or transformation really that we're going for, but these are kind of our fundamental human birthright and the things that we see day to day in all kinds of different ways. So partly I just wanted to break it down and make it simple that, you know, we're looking for freedom, whether that's freedom from oppression or freedom from our own monkey mind, you know, even in these ways, freedom in all the ways, well-being, because we all want to feel well, (laughs) whether that's healthy or mentally and emotionally well and whole 
which so in a way it's kind of still broad that it encompasses all of these aspects of being human and then connection because there's not necessarily so much of a distinction or a divide between your own connection to self and your own connection with your environment and with the people around you as well so trying to find a way to to show that it also kind of really drawing from the trauma-informed research about how essential it is. You know, we're social creatures, that our sense of self is developed in relationship and the answer isn't always going off and being on your own and just doing your own practice and your own thing. So the part of the restoration and the connection comes from the inward and the outward connection. I think like a yoga class is kind of unique in it's this space where you can be with other people and you have that shared group energy of everyone practicing together. But if you're having a day when you don't have a lot of energy to talk to other people or to interact with other people or to put yourself out there, it's still a space that you can kind of come to and not be alone and usually like feel better after the practice. Yeah, you're right. It is a really unique setting in so many ways. And I was actually thinking about this because I saw I saw an Instagram post the other day that was talking about, you know, kind of the goal of yoga is to develop your own self-practice. And I was thinking about this in the context of connection and entrainment or rhythmicity, you know, the, the how we really draw support from being in rhythm with others. And I thought, actually, maybe we should start to reframe that mm-hmm. And look at yoga classes and these kind of settings as real opportunities to restore and connect personally, like individually and together, and really acknowledge the power of that and make use of it some more, even. Because I think it's, and because there's not so many places in the world (laughs) that are safe that we can really do that. And I think that's our role of as yoga teachers and studio owners is that we're creating these safe spaces for people to really connect with themselves where they are, as they are, and to connect authentically and have this shared experience with others. It's one of, it's a funny thing because, you know, sometimes people doze off in Shavasana, especially in like a yoga nidra context. And like, where else would you be comfortable just falling asleep on the ground in a room full of people <laughs> you don't know? Like, <laughs> so true. I've thought about it. Hello there. I hope you're enjoying our conversation with Mei Lai. Now, I've been wondering how we can keep people more engaged with the show. It goes for an hour and, you know, that's a decent chunk of time. So someone from our Facebook group, the Flow Artist Podcast community, suggested that we add short breaks. So here we are. Now, this is just something I wanted to try out, and I'd love to know what you think. You can drop a note in the Facebook group or message us via email at podcastflowartist.com. Now, while I have you here, I just wanted to quickly mention something new at our studio, Garden of Yoga. It's our new awesome monthly pass. For $180, you get unlimited aerial yoga, yoga and meditation classes for a whole month. Awesome value. Just check our website, gardenofyoga.com.au for details. All right, that is more than enough from me. Let's get back to the conversation with May Lai Swan. Actually, it's something, this is a very small scale version of it as well, but it's something I notice. I teach quite a few corporate classes and it's this beautiful energy of all the people who work together and in a hierarchy, like the boss and the secretary and all these people in different departments, all just kind of practicing together. Mm. And it's so interesting because so much workplace culture is like based around drinking or it sounds like those hierarchies and those social structures are still very much a part of social time as well. But yoga seems to be a really equalizing space. Yeah, it's so great that it's really starting to well I don't know I've never worked in the corporate space so I don't know so much but to hear how it's kind of really entering the corporate spaces more and making a difference in those spaces my experience has been really interesting actually because often there's this perception that people aren't going to want to meditate they're just going to do something like physical like don't bring in any philosophy but I found people are really open to it and also open to falling asleep with their workmates (laughs) they probably need it (laughs) 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 (laughs)
Oh, that's great. <laughs> I mean, I remember when I was working in an office and someone coming in and teaching us yoga and it's the favourite part of your day. It's... Oh, it's so lovely. <laughs> yeah. Like, people tell you that they're like, well, this is the mm. highlight of my week or like, I only came into work today so I could go to yoga. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> See, but it really, like, to me, it, we, we create these divisions in, you know, types of people based on where they work or what roles they have and all this sort of stuff. And it's, for me, fundamentally, it's just about being human and that we are all human and have the same fundamental desires and needs. And we don't know what people's histories are or their backgrounds are or where they'd rather be, perhaps. <laughs> I do a little bit of community teaching as well. Like our local council organises a great program that me and Ryan are both part of. Oh, that's great. Active in Darabin, which is really nice. And I see a similar and different dynamic in those community classes as well because the people don't know each other, but they really kind of get to know each other mm. over the course. Like the program I've been teaching has been going for a few years and so it's like this beautiful coming together of all different people from all different parts of the community. Like, it's a real range of ages. Like, my most recent class, one mum bought her toddler, and it was Pilates, and the toddler was just so part of it. Like, he was always, like, crawling over her and, like, going under her legs and everything. And one of the older ladies who was kind of, like, grandma age was like, I've got a question. Can you just bring us all the toddler next week? <laughs> Oh, that's so nice, that's the joy so... of kids. Oh, yeah, it was so cute because I was a little bit wondering, like, oh, I thought it was really cute, but I was like, oh, I wonder how everyone else is feeling about this. Like, I wonder if it's a little bit of a distraction or, mm -hmm. you know, but it's like, no, everyone loves it. Oh, <laughs> it's so nice. I think that's what's so great about yoga making its way into community settings and just not in the studio because it makes it so much more accessible, of course, and it breaks down the stigma and the way that it's, you know, when we were talking about Instagram before, about the way that it's portrayed so often of tiny girls in bikinis and guys with their shirts off and in all these really gymnastic kind of poses which just continues I think to make yoga inaccessible so to have spaces where that's just not even part of the picture is so great. I think people have a really different expectation of a community class because people are coming for free so people are a bit more laid back about other people coming in late or leaving early or maybe it not being in a beautiful location like people don't come in with that baggage but when we walk into a yoga studio often there's this perception about what yoga is and what yoga is meant to be like and then maybe what we're meant to be like yeah. as yogis yeah that's right I think that can really happen and I think it's great you know, I'm seeing in Melbourne more, I mean, Gertrude Street was one studio where I was teaching at, a lot was the first studio I taught at, actually, and I still teach there. And what's been so lovely is to see that as the studio's grown and the community's grown, that there has been this conscious effort to keep it authentic and to keep it real and to keep it accessible and really to the spirit of yoga and not going down this commercial path. And I know there's other studios in Melbourne that are doing that too, and I just think it's so necessary yeah and really great that they're opening it up in those ways yeah yeah and I'd like to kind of talk to you a little bit more because we were chatting about this before about social media because even with the best of intentions it can be a really a bit of a minefield for yoga teachers and the source of a lot of insecurities and a like suck of so much of your time as a teacher do you have any strategies for yourself about, I mean, obviously you need to promote what you're doing. You need to tell people about what you're doing. And you also kind of want to put stuff that you're into out into the world. Yeah. Because I love your feed. Like any, any <laughs> strategies for creating a lovely social media stream that makes you feel good? <laughs> well, I think the first thing for me is that it's always in integrity with my own values. Um, and it's something I've thought about a lot. I try not to engage on Instagram and stuff too much. <laughs> One easy thing for me is that what I do and what I offer, I really believe in. And in a way, the offering is not separate from me. So I don't, it's almost like I don't feel like I'm marketing something. I feel like actually I'm just offering something of value. And if people are interested in that, then that's great. And I want to let them know. So partly it's from that perspective, but also really being mindful about 
what the content is and I won't post something just for the sake of posting something but because you know it's good for your brand if you post every day (laughs) (laughs) the algorithm likes that (laughs) I know (laughs) and also you know I see and I actually see this so often that if you know if there is a picture that looks a little bit more glamorous not that's completely the wrong word for me (laughs) 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 but I don't know what it is inbuilt in humans, but it's really the case that sex sells. And I don't know what's another word for this kind of marketplace spirituality. And I say that tentatively because I also don't want to put anyone down because everybody has their own way of engaging with their own spirituality. So it's not a judgment, but it's just an observation of the way that things go. And A lot of that's not where I'm at in my own life and not in line with my values. So it's just a constant checking in and saying, well, what's really true for me? And like, do I feel good about this thing that I'm putting out there? Yeah. And what and and also thinking what kind of impact might that have on people? What's the message that I'm actually giving out? Even if I were to post something lightly, I'll think about it and go, well, how could that be? taken or interpreted people are going to interpret things as they like but what kind of culture do I want to be part of and part of creating is a big question that I hold and I think as well you are a beautiful person aesthetically and you know spiritually so if you're sharing pictures of yourself how to find that balance of self-expression and like feeling good about yourself as a person, but also not just kind of putting these beautiful images of yoga, you know, as an aesthetic practice. Yes. I'm kind of fortunate in a way, if this is fortunate, but I was the kid who would put my hand in front of my face anytime someone tried to take a photo. I was painfully shy and hated having my photo taken. It hasn't changed except I've gotten used to it a bit more now. It also means that I don't want to be constantly taking photos of myself or having other people take photos. And also that, you know, more and more, I don't really want my work to be about me because that's not what it's about. It's actually about community and it's actually about living in a way and creating offerings in a way that are really facilitating other people to find or fulfill kind of what their own desires are for themselves and if they happen to find that in something I offer then that's a great relationship Mm -hmm. I think like a lot of what you share as well like you share some really great quotes too and I think that's another nice way of balancing out stuff that's really visual with stuff that's a little bit more intellectually engaging and it's so interesting actually I'm going to share this is I feel like I'm almost taking a risk but One of my pet peeves (laughs) is sharing, like when I see people share a really sexualized image with a really meaningful quote. And I'm just kind of like, wow, I don't, it, it just gives a sense of a lack of integrity or a lack of awareness of actually what are you, what's the message and what are you trying to convey and what are you trying to achieve? Yeah. That's my pet peeve. (laughs) My pet peeve is sharing a beautiful image that another artist has created and not crediting the original artist with a quote. It's like, oh, guys, like how would you feel if someone did that to your work? Like it's not that hard to credit an artist if you're using something they've created. Exactly. And I think people are getting better at that too, which is really good to see that that's kind of growing in the culture. Perhaps we could go into a little bit more detail about your teacher training, the trauma-informed teacher training, because Joe and I are both very keen to do it, actually. (laughs) Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, so we have the 200-hour, what's really like a 230-hour, and then the 60-hour. They both obviously come from the same approach, but the 200-hour is designed as a foundational training for people who want to get their foundation certificate. And then the 60-hour is designed for existing yoga teachers who want to know more about trauma-informed practice and potentially start to go out and teach in the community, or many are already teaching in the community. So our approach to it, it draws from, I call it contemporary hatha and vinyasa, which obviously has its roots in traditional yoga, traditional asana and physical practice as well as the philosophy but it integrates a lot more of a somatic approach so much more about how do you create your yoga practice from the inside of your own felt experience versus trying to make shapes 
from somebody else's idea of what those shapes should look like. For me, that's this contemporary take is that there has been this fantastic evolution of yoga towards a more somatic and invitational approach. Um, but it's still obviously using those classical asana, those classical forms. So that's part of it. And then obviously the trauma-informed aspect, and there's ways that this is being developed. You know, there's all kinds of different things that could count as trauma-informed. From my personal background, it comes from my social work study and practice and community development practice, as well as somatic trauma therapy training and other somatic work that I've done that's specifically looking at how you would work with and or support people who have experienced trauma. And the trainings are very experientially focused. So it's really starting from this place of, I've said this so many times and I keep saying it, Mm -hmm. of just fundamentally being human. So really having, being attuned to your own self and having the capacity to be with yourself as you are. And then that becomes the foundation for being with others just as they are which it sounds so simple and it kind of is so simple but they're often the skills that we miss out on um, because we're so in feeling separate and judging other people and having our reactions and responses to things without actually understanding that here's a whole person who has a history that I don't know of at all usually And so it's kind of looking at your own lenses to then be with people in this way that is as much as possible a capacity to be with someone without any judgment and be willing and able to invite someone into their own experience through creating safety and creating trust. So it's, you know, I kind of as much as possible, we have all of these labels and all of these ideas in a way, looking at them, but then unpacking them and breaking it down to really what's at the heart of trauma-informed practice in yoga or any other field. And just hearing you describe that beautiful process, I was thinking about that in a therapy context or even just relating to another person one-on-one. But as a yoga teacher, you were doing this for your whole room full of people (laughs) and using language that conveys that message when those people usually aren't saying anything back to you so it's kind of an interesting dynamic it's a really interesting dynamic and a really in a way a tricky task which is why we also start from the experiential point because they're not skills that you can learn by reading books or even hearing about theories and that kind of stuff it's really in the relational context where those skills are developed and also your personal resilience. Trauma-informed approach is really about having an understanding of trauma and the impacts of trauma on individuals. And that really helps you to remove your judgment of what might be happening for that person or making assumptions, for example. Because often it can happen that if someone did walk out of the room mid-class and you think, oh, you know, you take it personally. You're like, oh, like, what did I say? What yeah. did I do wrong? <laughs> I did something wrong. We have such a tendency to reflect negativity negatively on our own actions, you know, but rather to see, it's like, well, I'm sure that person has a good reason. It may or may not have had something to do with what you said, but it may, even if it was something you said, perhaps even that it triggered a trauma response in that person and they didn't feel safe to stay in the room. And then it's fine if they need to leave. But Having an understanding of that helps you to remove judgments and assumptions that you might place on others and then also the judgments and assumptions that you place on yourself so that you can, as a teacher, stay present in the room with what you need to be doing at that time, which is holding space for the rest of the class and hopefully being able to check in with that person later. They sound like small shifts, but it can radically change the way that you hold space, which is perceptible to people on a subtle level, sometimes tangible level as well. And even with the language that you choose to use, I feel like that sets such a culture and such a tone in the class, which I think could, you know, 
maybe empower people within their bodies when they leave the class as well. Yeah, that's right. And there has been a real shift towards invitational language and giving people choice and encouraging them to be with their own experience. Language is such a huge part of it, maybe a key part, although I come back to your own attitude and your own understanding that's what enables you to find the language that's supportive and helpful. But it's, I, I've actually noticed that there, you know, some years ago when I was teaching and starting to weave in a lot more of the invitational language and choice and agency, it wasn't in, you know, if I went to other classes, I never experienced that. It was all purely directive. And now, you know, coming back to Melbourne, I'm noticing that that is seeping through much more broadly and it's just so great. I only have quite a limited experience of trauma-informed training. Like I've just done a workshop with Jo Buick and spoke to her as well. I could imagine when you embark on this style of teaching, there's a lot of things you take out of your teaching. You might take out certain themes, you might take out playing music, and you seem like a very creative person. Was it ever a challenge to kind of bring the same level of intricacy and richness and creativity into your teaching when maybe some things that you used to bring in were not on the menu anymore? That's a good question and an interesting question because really it depends so much on the context that you're teaching. So we have this name trauma-informed or perhaps, you know, many are using trauma-sensitive. Oh, what is the difference between those two terms? Yeah, I mean, trauma-sensitive is really more specifically if you're working with people that you know have experienced trauma and you basically are taking out all of the elements that perhaps might be triggering or unsupportive. So that kind of a practice is much more stripped back and much more specific in the way that you'd approach it and the language that you'd use. That's very specifically yoga for recovery from trauma, for example. But we also teach and work in so many other settings where we don't actually know. I mean, we know that trauma is ubiquitous amongst humans. That's part of the human experience. And we don't know who will be in our room or even if they have experienced trauma or what work they've done personally already. So in a way, very complex in studio teaching because you want to put some elements in there and work with language and choice to help people find their own agency and their own bodies and their own experience and also to avoid recreating circumstances of trauma particularly trauma that happened in relationship with other people so there are ways that you do that by changing some elements of a class but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to teach every single class as I say a trauma sensitive class Um, so there's still scope you know I still teach or I'm teaching embodied flow as well which Some of it is more directive of inviting people to a particular felt sense of a system or a tissue in their body and exploring movement from there. But what I do in that circumstance is explain what we're doing and why and that people have the choice of how much they want to engage. People know often if they're coming to an embodied flow practice what that is and what it's going to entail. So then they also have the choice of like, well, I can go to that or or not, but I still definitely use different creative elements too. Yeah, I guess it's that. And it seems like a lot of the richness comes from people tuning into their own experience rather than necessarily using metaphor or, you know, kind of using themes that would bring people out of their experience yeah that's right and I think it really comes back to this directive you know we can never tell someone what they should be feeling or have an expectation that they should be feeling one way or another or having any kind of experience so partly it's really starting from that place but what we can do is also set up circumstances where people can meet themselves in different ways. They're invited to meet themselves in different ways, which is kind of what yoga asana does in the first place. We take our body into different shapes, different containers where we have a different experience of ourselves. And then as we get more experience in those shapes, our experience of them changes as we become more refined and attuned. 
So they're all opportunities for self-inquiry, all opportunities for different ways of meeting ourselves. And I think it's the skill of the facilitator that that's not directive. You know, it's not for a like, oh, you do this and then you'll feel like this. That's what's disempowering for people. But perhaps you'd like to try this different approach or this different shape and see what your experience within that is not saying that it necessarily should feel good or feel any particular way, but how do you meet yourself there? And that's very beautiful because that's really bringing people into present moment awareness, which, like you're saying, is kind of the goal of yoga. Yeah, that's right. Yep. How do people meet themselves right where they are in every moment? It seems like your path has just unfolded so organically of just diving into everything that you love Do you have plans for the future? Like, do you have a vision for yoga for humankind? Or is it just about the everyday experience and seeing where it takes you? It kind of is about the latter. I love such a good question. I kind of chuckled when <laughs> like, huh, I'm not an ambitious person in the sense that I wanted. It's not about creating something with an end vision, but it's really about sharing something that I'm so passionate about and just seeing how it unfolds. And I mean, partly it's been so wonderful to see the response already and the interest that people have in the program. So there are plans in place because <laughs> you still, as a, in practical life, you have to plan. Especially when like, you're all over the world. Yeah. Like, that takes a bit of planning. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, people think, oh, it's so romantic just being a yoga teacher or running trainings or events and stuff. It's a lot of logistics, but I don't mind doing it. I quite like it as well. It's the project management side of me. But it, it really, so there's planning in place. Kind of, we've got plans till about 2020 at the moment mid-2020 to late 2020, also so there's consistency in what we're offering, but it's really just to keep offering kind of what's authentic and what is, is beneficial, hopefully, for people, and from that feedback to organically see where it goes. And I'm also respecting for our team our own time and our own other interests, and I'd like to set something up that has some rhythm and some regularity, um, but it's not going to overstretch anybody either if you could distill everything you've learned everything you teach down to one core thing what we're do you just think... finishing with an easy question <laughs> yeah, yeah. what do you think that one thing would be ah oh, i love this this is so great because i have been thinking about this a lot maybe not distilling it to one thing <laughs> i think it's really the and i know i've said this during our time together too but really this capacity to so authentically be with yourself just as you are which is all of the layers and the aspects of yourself and be with yourself as you are and then to be with others as they are beautiful yeah that was distilled beautifully (laughs) (laughs) oh thank you so much so lovely to meet you thank you so much for talking to us my pleasure thank you so much So that was our conversation with mate Lyle Swan. She is doing incredible work. I deeply respect and admire what she's doing. And I think the fact that they give a part of their proceeds to charity is fantastic, as are the scholarships they offer to local Balinese for their teacher trainings in Bali. Now, we'll leave lots of ways you can reach May Lai Swan on our website, podcast.flowartist.com. So definitely check out what she's doing. For our next episode, we have Coco Nkrumah coming on. He's a Melbourne-based meditation teacher, a podcaster, Qigong instructor, and more. We have a great conversation with him all about mindfulness and about his passion of making meditation accessible to people of color. So look out for that one. You'll hear from us again in a fortnight. Thanks so much for listening. Aroha nui. Big, big love. <laughs>